Good to see you here this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your watch care through this past week. Some we know have traveled. Others perhaps uh, haven't felt well and are better today. For those who aren't, we just uh, pray especially that you'll comfort them, and uh, particularly as some of them may uh, be watching uh, services online today in lieu of being able to be here. We just pray you'll watch over, bless, and keep them and restore their health. And in your will, we pray that you will bring them back to worship with us very soon. We thank you, Lord, for the health and strength that you gave us to wake up this morning, to have a desire in our heart, which we know the Spirit of God brings. It certainly doesn't come naturally, but we know it's there to be in the house of the Lord when Sunday and other times roll around. So we're grateful. And we just pray that as we've come here today that you would fix our hearts on the, the, the idea of worship, that we've come uh, not just to get but to give, and that in our worship we would be looking to you and praying that our hearts would be prepared and open and uh, expecting the blessing that you have for us. So to that end, we're praying now for ABF, asking that you will encourage us uh, in this class, be with those in the other classes, bless Ron uh, as he teaches and Patrick. And uh, Lord, as we come with open Bibles and open hearts, we pray that you will uh, meet our needs and help us to learn things and be exhorted by things and encouraged by things that will help us in this new and coming week and also uh, in our Christian experiences. For we pray these things now in Jesus' holy name, amen. All right, we are in 2 Peter chapter 3, and if you need an outline and didn't get it on the way in, they are available right inside the door now on the lectern, so please uh, feel free to, to get that. Let's go ahead and read from 2 Peter chapter 3. So your, your Bible's been open to 2 Peter chapter 2 for a while. I don't know whether you have to turn a page or not. But anyway, we're in 3, so let's begin reading at verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 7 this morning. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that is of paramount importance, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that, are, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So as a matter of housekeeping, right at the very beginning, I meant to say this earlier and forgot, we are here today uh, in the class, and next Sunday, being the fifth Sunday of the month, there will be a combined ABF, so uh, if it's kind of the normal rule of thumb, the men will likely be in here. I don't know all the details of that yet, or too many of them really. So um, just be aware of that. We won't be meeting for the second Peter class next Sunday morning, although there certainly will be ABF. Then that'll put us to the month of June, and we'll have, Lord willing, four Sundays there. So we're in good shape with this, because if you notice from the outline, 
We come to chapter 3, so we're on the last lap. This is the last chapter of the book. It's kind of amazing, really, how all of this hangs together. I guess I shouldn't say that. I guess we should really expect it because, of course, the Spirit of God is leading Peter in what he is, uh, in what he is uh, burdening him to write about to these people with this backdrop of false teachers. So now moving from chapter 2, this blistering expose of these false teachers. Remember, false teachers is really the backdrop of the entire epistle. And now he turns in particular, not that he hasn't been writing this expose for the benefit of his readers, because he certainly has, but as it got towards the ending part of the chapter, starting in verse 10, running down through the end, verse 22, I believe, that sort of qualifies. I, I kind of mentioned that's the centerpiece of the centerpiece where you kind of, that kind of qualifies, I think, as a blistering attack. He really lays bare these people. And not that it's not for the benefit of his readers, it is, but you can especially tell um, the heart of Peter as he turns now in the final chapter of the book to his, to his audience. He refers to them four times as beloved. And uh, in each of these cases, you will find that an exhortation will follow the use of the term beloved. So he calls to them using a term of endearment and an affection like you would for, for people that you minister to on a regular basis and love in the Lord. And then he has some final exhortations which round out the epistle. So we won't look at all those verses, but you have them noted there, chapter 3, verse 1, 8, 14, and 17. That's the uh, development that I'm going to use um, for, for the four lessons. So you can see one today... That leaves us three, and I haven't decided what I'm going to do with the final Sunday. If we don't get behind, we'll have one in there, and believe me, I'll, I'll have something that I've prayed about and feel led to do in relationship to what we've been doing. That's if we finish everything and don't need the time for cleanup purposes. But I do want to, I think this is really a great opportunity for us to go and zoom out just a little bit, because what happens sometimes is you're going from week to week, you're looking at the verses, you're kind of honing in. That's where you're zooming in. And I want to be sure that we don't lose track of what's going on in the epistle, which is why I took a little effort to mention, once again, that this, these false teachers are sort of the backdrop of everything that's going on here. So chapter 3, then, is showing us what? The Bible is sufficient for faith. Why? And here's the third reason. Because it tells us how to remain steadfast. So look at the whole picture. If we use this thesis, which we've been doing for the book of 2 Peter, uh, sufficiency in faith, the Bible, now to turn that, that topic around into a statement, the Bible is our sufficiency in faith. Why is that? Here are the three chapters, here's the, what we've been doing. It provides everything we need to be a flourishing Christian. So you remember we started off with the faith given, and then we saw how Peter outlined how we can have a growing and a flourishing faith, all of those things. Now then, we've been involved in chapter number two where he warns so the Bible warns, the Bible tells us this, we should not be caught off guard. Go back to chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets arose also among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So what he's basically saying there is nothing new. It happened all throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament. It's happening to you now, and it will be really a characteristic of the church age to some extent. But now here's a kind of a third thing, and don't you love how the Bible uh, does this? I mean, here's the letter now ending, turning to believers, reaching out to the hearts of believers. All right, in the light of this attack, especially when we see how withering the attacks are in our own day against the faith and against the Bible, 
can Christians withstand these things? Can we remain steadfast? He told us in chapter 1 how to be a flourishing Christian. Can we really be flourishing Christians in this ungodly day and with so many loud, strident voices around us that just constantly ridicule? And I, I choose the word advisedly because ridicule is related to scoffers, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So many strident voices that go on ridiculing people of faith. And it's around. Can we remain steadfast? We can, and Peter in these four exhortations tells us how. What's the first step? Well, the first step is to be aware of a twofold danger. And here's how I've divided this out for us today. In the first two verses, we're going to be looking at the danger of apathy from within. You always have to watch this because this is kind of in the devil's playbook, and I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I have learned a, a thing or two, um, not as much as the devil knows, but it seems like so often the attacks either come from without, there's some way that the devil attacks from within, or he attacks from without. And I pointed that out. It's really going on in looking at both letters that Peter wrote because there was an attack from without that first Peter was written to deal with the suffering. Right? That's an attack, generally speaking, from without. You sure hope you don't come to church and find yourself the object of persecution. That's more like a from without type of a thing. But when you have false teachers, and then when you see what Peter says, you say, well, can't false teachers attack from without? Certainly, but look at how he describes it back in chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose from the people, among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And then he goes on to say, who secretly will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So this is the thing. You have to watch for that. And then at the same point, though, you have to watch from the attack or for the attack from without. So first of all, let's take a look at this idea of the apathy from within. Look at those two verses again. Look at what he starts with. This is now the second letter. Why does he need a second letter? And presumably this is referring back to 1 Peter, although you will occasionally find some difference of opinion on this. Some people will take issue and say, well, uh, is 1 Peter really clearly a letter that's written to remind people of things? And uh, I mean, maybe 1 Peter doesn't deal with a whole lot related to false teachers, but I think a lot of what you do as a, a Bible teacher or a preacher is to remind people of things. And there's a good reason for this. You might, might notice there that I, I put, someone has well remarked that we need more reminding than we do informing. And it isn't that we don't need informing, but have you ever sort of noticed just by human nature how things operate with us that we'd rather hear something new than something old? But if you know that people still need to keep hearing the old things, then you have a job on your hands as a teacher or preacher because you're constantly, and this is not wrong, you're looking for ways to present those things that you know that people need to keep hearing, but in a fresh manner so that they don't become restless with the whole thing. But is there a need for this? <clears throat> well, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 12, because this is the second time he said this is the second time. He says, therefore, in verse 12 of chapter 1, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the present truth. So, so I'm a, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I come all the time. I, I kind of, maybe I don't consider myself to have arrived, but I do consider myself to be established in the, the present truth, the truth that you have. And uh, so, but, but Peter says, I'm writing to remind you. 
And then he doubles down in his uses of words that have to do with reminding or remembering and says in verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. And then he mentions, especially since he knows that his time with them is shorter at this point and, and probably rather short, this is what he's concerned about. So when we get to our verses here, look, he's doing the same thing. He says, this is the second letter. Then he says, in both of them, I'm trying to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And look at how he, he doubles down these words again. Reminder, should remember, verse 2, and so forth and so on. So stir up, arouse people, awaken people. Why? Well, it's just because, and don't take any offense at this, it's just because. It's because we tend to kind of get very comfortable and familiar with things relating to church and doctrine, and we kind of consider ourselves well-schooled. I mean, you say, well, I'm, I'm here in ABF, right? So I, I know enough about the Bible and so forth. I'm not saying you don't. I don't think you can ever know too much about the Bible, but what I'm saying is, sure, I'm, not, I'm not taking that away from anybody here this morning. I would concede that point. But I would also remind you that there is this danger of apathy because we feel that we are established in the present truth, because we feel that we do. That's sort of a, you have to watch that as a weakness because you can be taken unawares. And this is exactly what Peter is concerned about. But I, I noticed an element here, um, and I want to mention this for a couple of reasons. He says, I want to stir up, I want to awaken, I want to arouse. And it says here in our translation, your sincere mind. So I, I see a couple of things here. First of all, I think this is a skillful kind of a subtle compliment that he's paying to them. There's no sense in which Peter is come across, coming across as castigating them, just as I'm not coming across as castigating you here this morning. No, he's saying, you know, I have confidence that by and large, you folks are fine. I mean, yes, I, we're concerned about these false teachers. I've been warning you about these false teachers, but he comes across to them as that, by and large, he's, he's convinced that they're aware of this, and he's just a, a careful, watchful, alert pastor trying to warn them of the dangers of, of listening to these people should they, should they be bent that way. Now, if you uh, are a person who has used uh, recently or for a long time, or maybe you still do the King James Version, you remember the translation pure, stir up your pure minds, by way of remembrance, and we have here sincere. Either is a valid translation. It's kind of an interesting word. When you think of pure, normally you're thinking of a different word in the original. This is kind of a, not an unprecedented word, but kind of an unusual word that's used here that Peter, halicrenase is a word here that I've mentioned is literally judged by the sun. And if you take the Latin translation of that, it's where we get our English word sin, seer. So if you remember any Latin from school, if you had that, S-I-N, sin is without, and sere is, is the word for wax. So some people think the etymology and meaning, since the Greek word means judged by the sun and the Latin word means without wax, some people have proffered, and, and I, you know, I don't have any problem with this, I, I don't know if I can prove anything, but I don't know that I'm worried about proving it either, but some people have proffered that the idea behind this is if you were a, a huckster, if you were a merchant and you had pottery for sale to people and you had a piece that maybe had a defect or maybe it had even been cracked and you had repaired it, 
One way that you might sort of atone for that is you take some wax, put over that blemish, and maybe touch up the color just a little bit. Somebody couldn't tell. But if you held it up to the sun, and especially if the sun then warmed the thing where the wax was, you might be able to discern that. So sincere is without wax. That may be the sense that Peter is using this here, but in the main, what he's expressing to his audiences is, is that by and large, he considers them not to, have, not to have been taken in by these false teachers. But I have a second reason for getting into this, calling attention to what seems maybe like a, a relatively minor detail in the verse, the sincere mind. Because have you ever stopped to think about how important the mind is? Have you ever stopped to think about how important where you take information in is and what information you take in? How important that really is. Because, watch this, moral corruption and bad doctrine all start with wrong thinking. And so Peter tells them that he wants to arouse their pure minds, their sincere minds, by way of remembrance. Uh, he wants to do everything he can as a pastor and as an apostle, as a fellow elder, as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 5, the early part, to keep them free of both the moral corruption of these false teachers. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and we've seen that over and over again. That seems to be one of the most salient features of these false teachers was their, their license, their moral abandon, horrible uh, things that Peter talks about, particularly in verses 10 through 22. But you'll notice, when he works down a little bit further into this chapter, we aren't there yet. Um, it won't be next time either or, or the time after, but we'll get to this. Um, he says, since all of these things are thus, verse 11, to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So he, he's very concerned about this. What poses a real threat or jeopardy to God's people living pure, holy, godly lives? Well, for one thing, bum information. Because if you're of the belief that there's, there's really nothing wrong with that. And so it is a very subtle thing, because you start off with something that's maybe a little bit less than obvious, or you start off with something that in the culture of the time people have become softened to. And then you, you sort of use that to make your play, make your inroads into God's people. Um, Balaam, if you think about Balaam, and he's brought up in chapter number two as an example, I mean, he couldn't figure a way to get God to curse Israel, right? So he found a way to come in through the back door. Just invite the people to the sacrifices. Remember? Then when they got to the sacrifices, they got taken in by moral temptations, and there was a lot of problem there. So wrong thinking opens the door to bad teaching and, and Right after that will then follow uh, the corruption of the types of moral standards that we need to have. Let me show you some verses on this. So if you turn to this, I'm not asking you to, but if you turn to this in the ESV, you'll see why I chose to use the King James here, because some of you may, some of you may not, but your ESV will give you a, a little footnote on this verse and suggest the alternate way of rendering the verse, which is, more how the King James renders it here, which I think is kind of more on point in the context. We don't have time for that, but look at this. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
the, the context is a feast, and you've been invited, and he says, oh, eat and drink. You're my best bud. You're here, and enjoy yourself. But his heart is not with you. He's thinking something else, see? And what, what the principle that's being given here in the verse is what he's thinking really reveals what's going on. It reveals who he is. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Well, let's come to something a little more explicit. So when Jesus was talking about this whole controversy in Mark chapter 7, they jumped him because he ate with what kind of hands? Unwashed hands, right? And he finally works down to the place where he says to them, you know, you can have your ceremonies, but you know what? A man isn't really defiled by what comes from without. A man is defiled by what comes from within, or woman. So this is what he says. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. Now you and I are thinking, okay, what's going to follow is this long list of impurities. And it does, but not before it mentions the very first thing, which is, look, evil thoughts. Do you see what I'm trying to say to you? What comes first? Wrong thinking. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Wrong thinking leads to wrong, leads to wrong doctrine. So from within, out of the hearts of man come evil thoughts, and then sexual immorality, theft, murder, all these acts take place. First, it's a matter of a bad thinking process. So if Peter is writing to you and to me, and to the people he wrote to in his day, and said, look, I want to show you how in the midst of all of these scoffers and all of these problems with these false teachers, I want to show you how to remain steadfast. Then how do we keep ourselves from getting off into wrong thinking? Because wrong thinking is the problem that leads to wrong doctrine and wrong living. All right, there you go. The Bible is the key to right thinking. When you turn on these people in the news or when you read the paper, how do you keep your thinking straight? How do you keep your thinking straight when you're listening to talking heads? I don't listen to them. I get so tired of them that they just constantly spew this stuff out. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't think you have to have a degree from MIT to figure out these people are crazy. But apparently a lot of people are taken in by it. The Bible is the key to right thinking, and I'll go you another one. I remember something that the Lord burdened my heart about when I was, I was still here in Greenville, it was before I'd left to really be involved in formal, well, I had one position here, but, but I'll say formal ministry. And I noticed a trend then, and to some extent it's still with us, and, and you'll have to listen carefully because I'm not at all trying to denigrate good, wholesome reading. but. There's one person in particular, and he'd start preaching on something, and I'd say to myself, he's read another book. And it would largely prove to be true, because you'd get a sermon or two into the thing, and he'd tell you about what, what the book was. And I used to think to myself, you know, it's nothing wrong with reading good books. Nothing wrong with picking up a book that a godly person has written that really helps. But here's the caveat that I would give you. Read the Bible twice as much as you read books, if not three times as much as you read books, because I don't care how good a book you pick up, it will never be perfect, and there will always be some ideas that are less than what they should be, 
So how do you keep your thinking straight? Even when you're reading relatively good literature, the Bible is the key to right thinking. And I want you to see what Peter does in verse number two because this is really something not to miss. All right, verse number three, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. But verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Two things. Look at your outline or look at your verse, verse number two. The Bible is the key to right thinking. What does the Bible consist of? It consists of the Old Testament, wherein we have, as Peter sort of uses to kind of part for the whole type of thing, the words of the prophets, or more specifically, the predictions of the prophets, because he's thinking about these scoffers, and the commands of the apostles. Two things. Largely in the New Testament, that's what we have, right? We have the Gospels, but as the New Testament gets underway, we have the authoritative teaching of the apostles. In the Old Testament, we have the authoritative teaching of the prophets, and of course, not to mention the lawgiver himself, Moses, but let's see what this really amounts to. What, what, what Are we making a mountain out of a molehill? No, we are not. Because look what Paul says when he talks about this same thing. I've given you more verses to, to get context. So then he says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, you are no longer strangers and aliens, these Gentile believers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What's the church built on? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Two things, the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, I, you know what? I don't want to take too much time on this, but I do want to point out something. Um, and it, it's a relatively minor point perhaps, but it, it's always sort of intriguing because you, you, know, you know as you're teaching and preaching that people... Uh, especially in our day, and especially in a church like this, are very much aware of other translations. And I'd like to call your attention to something. So you'll notice that the way ESV has chosen to handle this, he says, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and commandments of the Lord and Savior. And then it says, through your apostles. So what this translation effectively does is puts the emphasis on the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, far be it for me to take any emphasis off the Lord, but I think it misses the point of the way the Greek text is set up. Because the way the Greek text is set up, and you'll find the King James follows this, and you'll find earlier translations, although a lot of your modern language ones follows this particular way of taking it, I think the problem to some extent is, is that we get a little uncomfortable putting more, what seems to be more emphasis on the apostles than we're putting on the Lord himself. That is precisely, I think, so if you, don't, if you disagree, that's okay with me. But to me, that is precisely to miss Peter's point. That is precisely the thing he is doing in this particular verse because what he is doing is allowing equal weight, equal authority, equal footing. He's saying in the same way that you would come to regard the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative, the predictions of the prophets. So it is that the commandments, notice the difference in words too. He talks about the, the prophets predicted, that's what they do. The, old, or the, the, 
the apostles' command. It was given to the apostles to give the written and oral instruction to the church, and that becomes formative. It's the basis of our doctrine and practice. And what Peter is really saying is, okay, these false teachers are coming along, and I'm telling you right now, what they are saying and what they are teaching and how they are living is divergent from your apostles, those people that you know. And it's also divergent from the Old Testament prophets, and it's wrong. How do you ensure that you keep right thinking? Saturate yourself with the scripture. So that's what's going on here. Now, we've taken a lot of time. Let's get to this last part that has more verses in it. So there's also an attack from without. Peter mentions the scoffers. And one of the things that you may be thinking when you first see this is, okay, now we're shifting gears. We had the false teachers in chapter 2. Now we've got the scoffers. They're coming. Because he does say, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Well, let me just say this. I don't think we're really talking about a different crowd. I just think we're talking about a crowd that was present then and is present all through the church age. Because when he talks about the last days, you have to remember that technically speaking, we've been living in the last days at, at a minimum since Pentecost. You might as well just say, as we think about the church age, we're living in the last days. The scripture is clear enough on that. So this is not saying that, okay, you have to wait until 2000 before you get any false teeth scoffers. No, scoffers have been around for the course of church history too. I think this is just a different way of describing the problem that these people, these false teachers, this is just a different characteristic of the problem they have. What does a scoffer do? He makes jest, he pokes fun at, he ridicules, he puts down. Here are three verses in Matthew. Ordinarily in scriptural usage when you're scoffing, you're scoffing at things that are good. And so, in the context of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, look at this, twisting together a crown of thorns, these are the soldiers, they put it on his head, put a reed in his hand, and kneeling down before him, what'd they do? They mocked him, huh, poked fun at him. Who were they poking fun at? Jesus. When they mocked him, the next verse says, they stripped him of the robe, so forth and so on. Then the crowds joined in with the same thing. Matthew intentionally keeps repeating and using this word, mockers, mocking. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. Notice the jeer, notice the taunt. He saved others himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down on the cross, they won't believe. You get this, just this way that they have of just sort of, there's just that tinge to it. It's actually a word that comes out of what kids do when kids make fun. So you, you kind of have that little childish ring to what adults often do as well. As I said, I don't think these are so much different people as much as scoffing is just a symptom of their own sinful desires, following their own sinful desires. You'll notice that, again, Peter does this. He, he kind of gives the clue. He gives the hint at the end of verse number three. What's the problem with scoffers? Why are they doing what they're doing? Why are they intentionally belittling, making fun of things that have been historically regarded as appropriate? It's because of their lifestyle. And when you live a bad lifestyle, notice it says following their own sinful desires. So when you live a bad lifestyle, generally speaking, you've got to somehow make fun of people who tell you that lifestyle isn't right. 
You've got to somehow put them down. You've got to somehow ridicule them. And what you're really targeting is the authority that's behind it. Anything or anyone that will hold them accountable, they make fun of. So the target is generally someone or something that holds people accountable. Did you ever notice that that's what this book does? Did you ever notice that, in a, in a sense, you think about the Sermon on the Mount, what, what does Jesus say our mission here in this world is? Salt, light, salt, light. Salt, light. You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. If the salt has lost its favor, flavor, sorry, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. I had a sermon on that when I preached through there, good for nothing Christians. That's what he says. Kind of a blunt title, but that's what he says. It's thenceforth good for nothing. Salt retards corruption, light exposes. It's our, it's, it's our mission in this world. It doesn't say you have to go around with chip on your shoulder or unkind to people, but it is. And, and so when people pass a church, and they're living an immoral lifestyle, they either ignore it and just sort of make out like it's not there, or if they're somehow forced to deal with it, a lot of times the, the self-defense mechanism is mockery or scorn or disdain. Well, you know, it's those fuddy-duddies over there that that went out with the horse and buggy. What have I just done? I've just done exactly what a mocker does. I've made fun of you by saying and suggesting you should have gone out with the horse and buggy. Your old school is a current expression for some of that. That's what they do. Why? Look at the verses that I've given you, but before we look at that, I have those two verses, but before we do, let me give you one that I didn't, because he brings up in specifically the second coming. Do you think the second coming in the Bible is a doctrine that's meant to hold us accountable? I, I did see at least one person nodding. All right, and not asleep. Proverbs, or Proverbs, man, I'm not even in the right testament. Matthew 24, verse 30. This is from the Olivet Discourse. This is what Jesus said about his own second coming. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will rejoice. Is that what it says? I know you didn't turn. No, it says they'll mourn. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son, Son of Man coming on clouds, the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. And what will he do? Send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Judgment. Judgment is associated in the Bible with the second coming of Jesus. So wonder they make fun. By the way, when it says here in, in our verse that the scoffers are making fun of the second coming, that's, that's a very important point to take note of for a lot of reasons. But one thing I wanted to mention at this juncture is it's really the only thing that he singles out that they were saying. They were ridiculing the second coming. Did you notice when we go back to chapter 1, verse 16, that, that Peter starts off saying, we weren't just kidding when we made known to you that as eyewitnesses his coming in power. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So the second coming is under attack, and these people are mocking it, saying, you know what, these guys have been saying this and been saying this 
And it's no different than, well, let's look at our verses. So even in the life of a Christian, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him that Jesus is coming back purifies himself. We know we're going to stand before the Lord one day. Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, teaching us that renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. See, see, it's all connected with when you preach the second coming. So again, folks, we're reminded of something that's very important, that the second coming, any doctrine in the Bible, doesn't really matter. We're not just given these things so that we can bloat our minds with Bible knowledge and facts. I mean, it's good to have that. But they're all meant to have a practical exhortation value to them. And the second coming is to remind us to, to live in this world in, in a way that, that honors him and to do his will. So they don't like that. It's a rub. That's why the second coming is, is ridiculed. What's their theory? <clears throat> it's called uniformitarianism. What do they say? This is the only place that we really have a record of what these people were saying. But what, in fact, they were saying is that where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep? I take that as in uniformity with the New Testament usage, the fathers to refer to the Old Testament patriarchs, and perhaps in a more general way with even before them. But ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What's that argument really state? It means that in modern terms, we have deism, right? I mean, it's, it's always around, but back in the 18th century and, and so forth, it was maybe a little bit more pronounced, but deism sort of portrays God as kind of like a grand clockwinder. Do, do you notice that they use the word creation? These people, remember, they at one time had a religious profession, so it does not appear that they were denying that there was a God, as some people would. But paying some, tipping their hat in some way to their earlier profession, they were just suggesting that God created the world and then just sort of went on a lark. God isn't anywhere around. God just sort of wound up. He designed the clock, great, nice grandfather clock. He designed it, and then he wound it up, and he hasn't been around since. So don't worry about it. You can live however you want. Because God doesn't really intervene in history. People who say that, they're just outmoded. And but Peter says, you know something? They're willingly ignorant of the fact that God is many times, you know, just because Peter uses the example of the flood doesn't mean that he's saying that this is the only time God has done this. If you want, if you want a more modern, current example of a cataclysm, just read about Herculaneum and Pompeii. God does this enough to keep us honest. God does this providentially all the time. It just takes sometimes eyes open to who God is to see it. God is involved in human affairs all the time, but Peter calls on the most spectacular history, uh, example of history of God intervening in judgment with the flood. And he says they deliberately reject that, even though many cultures have flood stories, and all you have to do is think of the epic of Gilgamesh. We don't have time. But... I think I altered the wording of this slightly, so I'm not sure what your paper says, not the earth maybe. But here in the, in the PowerPoint, notice I've broadened that out a little bit because I don't want you to have a misimpression. When Peter says the earth that then was, 
was destroyed in a cataclysm of the flood. He, he's not saying that the heavens and the earth, the physical universes we kind of consider it were destroyed. They weren't. He's reflecting more on the fact that God deluged that ungodly society and destroyed it with a universal flood. Now, I'm sure there was great impact to the earth, no question about that. But the earth wasn't wiped out in the sense that the earth was no longer here. The heavens weren't, weren't, weren't wiped out in the sense that they were no longer here. Obviously, when the rain stopped and the floods receded, it was all still here. And when the dove knew that she had a place to light, she was comfortable with that. He's saying God destroyed that society. So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, the world that then was, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and he brought it says, upon the world of the ungodly, a flood. And you remember at the time I pointed out that that word that's used for the deluge of a flood is cataclysm. And it's the same word that's repeated here. God just absolutely just wiped that civilization off the face of the map. And they don't want to talk about that, even though many ancient cultures do. The same God, though, and let's end with this, the same God, well, almost, the same God who promised not to destroy the world again by water, and I have the verses, but we don't have time really to, I think you're familiar with that, instead has the now earth. So Peter has a little play on words here. The world that then was is the then earth, and the world that now is is the now world. And God has them on layaway. Notice how Peter says this. They now, that now exist are stored up, verse 7, stored up. And so it's, 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 thesaurizo in Greek is the word to, to treasure or to lay up treasure. So this is kind of like you go into a store and you just see something that you really want, but it's way more money than you have. Guy says, well, I can put that on layaway for you. <laughs> you know, so you give him some money and he sets, he's got that stored up, he's got that protected for you, so when you come in with the balance of the money, then the item is yours. This is what, in a sense, Peter is saying, is God just has it all on layaway. God hasn't gone out of the business of, of holding men to account. God is going to do this, folks. And I'm telling you, it, my wife, was, I was talking to her about this this week, and she said, well, you know, most people aren't thinking that way now. And I said, well, most people weren't thinking that way when Noah was building the ark either. Until, it, until it, God, Noah went into the ark, and God closed the door, and it started raining. Then they started thinking that way. And on the Titanic, they weren't thinking about that either until that vessel hit that iceberg. And all of a sudden, all these talking heads and all these people that have been ridiculing and making mock and making fun, all of a sudden, like in a flash, their thinking's going to change. It's better to keep the right way of thinking now. Keep yourself saturated with God's word. So look at this. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the constant drumbeat of scoffers. That was Psalm 1 that we heard recently. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and doesn't sit down to listen to these people, scoffers. Instead, what do you do? To remain steadfast, you keep reminding yourself, in fact, immerse yourself in God's truth, which is where this chapter is going to end. It's what Jude says, look at verse 20, but you, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith. It's exactly the way Jude sort of ends out the same type of warning. It's what Paul told Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, because some people professing that garbage have swerved from the faith, he says. 
And the psalmist says the same thing in the very next verse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth, med doth he meditate day and night. Folks, I couldn't give you a, I don't think I could give you a better thing to close this lesson with this hour than just to say, look, you and I probably aren't going to be able to change the course of this age. We'll win some people to Christ. That's the mission of the church, part of the mission of the church. But evil men and seducers shall wax better and better, right? No, worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. You and I aren't going to change that, but we can keep ourselves from being falling prey to that wrong thinking because wrong thinking leads to wrong doctrine and leads to, leads to wrong living. Dear God, bless us now as we contemplate those things that we've heard, those things that will be helpful and are from you. Help us to recall and anything else just blow away as chaff. Bless in our service to come in Jesus' name. Amen.